This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and this is the second episode to come directly out of the 2023 Agatha Christie Festival that I attended in lovely Torquay in the south of England this past September. One of my co-panelists who you listened to in my previous episode debating Agatha Christie's greatest short story was kind enough to sit down with me while we were still both attending the festival and to talk a little bit about the work that he does. That would be Dr. Jamie Berntal Hooker. And let's just get right to the interview because he doesn't really need all that much of a preamble at this point in the life of the podcast. And we got right into it as we sat down face to face a couple of weeks ago. Enjoy. My guest today is one of those I consider a true friend of the podcast. We've had Jamie Berntal Hooker on two times in the past. First, to talk about his book of literary theory and criticism, Queering Agatha Christie. And second, to co-host an episode with me reviewing and ranking Nemesis. In that capacity, he was one of the few who stepped in to help me after my co-host Catherine Brobeck passed away. And for that, I will be eternally grateful. It's also a wonderful episode. Last year, he came out with Agatha Christie, a companion to the mystery fiction, and in addition to editing two other books by various scholars and theorists writing about Christie, uh, he is one of the organizers of the annual Agatha Christie Conference, which is a gathering of mystery-focused academics and obsessives that I've attended twice now, the first time with Catherine, and I know it was one of her favorite things she did for the podcast. Uh, Jamie was also one of her favorite people she met through the podcast. Uh, we're actually doing this episode live and in person here in Torquay, and Jamie is avoiding looking at me because this is all just a little too personal, uh, I, I think, and intimate. And I have to admit it, it is often easier to do this over Zoom, but I am thrilled to be here in person with him. And I'm sorry to, uh, to make you blush, figuratively blush, Jamie, but you are also one of my favorites as well. So... Given that Jamie has done all this scholarly work on Christie, I was quite interested to learn that he is also a mystery writer. He wrote Jessica Brick Investigates, and I'm just going to read the description off the back cover to give you a sense of what this is. A detective like no other. Jessica Brick is an elderly spinster who lives in a sleepy English village. When she decides to become a crime solver, nobody thinks she'll succeed. Dot, dot, dot. And they're right. She's clueless. <laughs> Jessica's village is awash with crime, intrigue, and goings-on of all kinds in these comic tales. They're baffling puzzles that are dead funny. If you're a fan of Miss Marple, Agatha Raisin, or Midsummer Murders, you'll be delighted to meet Jessica Brick. 
So what Jamie's written here is pastiche or parody. It's a satirical spin on Agatha Christie and on Miss Marple specifically, I would say. I have read it. I have read his his first volume. He actually has written two uh, volumes of the Jessica Brick Investigates to date, and it's deliciously fun. It consists of a series of uh, long, short stories in which Jessica really does bumble her way through case after case. So first off, Jamie, I have to ask, what made you want to write <laughs> Jessica Brick? Oh, thank you very much. Um, Jessica is hugely inspired by Miss Marple, absolutely. So the thing that really fascinates me about Miss Marple is, of course, she's a great detective because everyone underestimates her. Everyone thinks, oh, she's a batty old lady, and what she's saying doesn't seem to make sense, and then suddenly it does. But what if it didn't? What if everyone else was right? So that was the idea that sort of inspired Jessica Brick. So I just want to give listeners a sense of what Jamie is doing here in this book, because not all, you know, sort of satire and parody is created equally. Just uh, here, here are a few of the satirical elements of Jessica Brick that I loved. I'll just go through a few of these. The title of his first story is A Fate Worse Than Death, and that would be fate spelled F-E-T-E. You know, the weird, to me, the weird English pronunciation of what I always think of as fet. <laughs> those country fates that we we know and love from books like Dead Man's Folly. As many listeners know, I cannot resist a good pun or a bad pun. <laughs> uh, and all good puns are bad puns, of course. And Jamie has many of them in the book. Uh, he also has a character named Rubella Carruthers, who instructs people with an adenoidal flourish, no less, to call her Ruby. That is a lot of Miss Marple uh, references packed into very few words. That was one of my favorite parts that I underlined as I was reading. At another point, when Jessica Brick asks someone about a will, he writes this in an aside. Jessica had spent sufficient time in front of ITV3 to know that when a rich patriarch is involved, the contents of his will are second only in significance to the cast list. Sadly, in real life, there can be no handy hints in the form of spotting the famous names among the suspects. So this is just a book that is written for mystery lovers and people who have just lived within the genre and its conventions and who delight in, you know, pointing out all of the patterns and the cliches and, you know, the times when it works and the times when it doesn't. And that's what I really cherished about it as I was reading it. I'm interested in why you, though, specifically wanted to do satire and not just write a straightforward mystery. I know from having had numerous discussions with you at this point in our lives that you view The Body in the Library as pastiche itself. Uh, We also know that Agatha Christie wrote the Tommy and Tuppence Partners in Crime collection, which is fairly universally recognized as pastiche. She was sending up the works of many of her contemporaries, including herself, quite fabulously. So do you feel like you're honoring something that Christie herself did with Jessica Brick or not? I mean, are you are you just doing something playful and completely different? I'm, I'm just curious because I don't think, I think there are a lot of people who love Christie who have chosen to write straightforward mysteries and homage to Christie, but it's interesting to me that you chose this route. Mm, thank you. Um, I think uh, Agatha Christie is an unacknowledged parodist. I think she's a brilliant comic writer, which doesn't get enough credit. And as you say, we have uh, Partners in Crime. We have The Body in the Library, which it's egregiously seen as a straightforward novel. It's clearly a parody. Um, But also things like The Big Four are criminally underrated because we don't acknowledge that they're parodies. Uh, So she was also, even in her straight novels, was a very funny writer. 
And I think humour is a huge part of the crime fiction genre, especially when you're not focusing on the violence, as Christie didn't so much, and as I certainly don't want to. Also, I like to have fun, and people don't often notice that, maybe. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, I really... Jamie, you're very fun. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, I really enjoy the books, and I, I like having a laugh with other people who enjoy the books. So in a way, this is an extension of that. And in a way, this is also me writing geekily into the void. Interesting. Because I, as I was reading your book, I was trying to think of what other sorts of parodies that I've read. And there aren't that many. And to me, it also feels like something that people don't do as much of now, potentially, which is also, though, I mean, I think when Christie was writing, that was also pastiche was a much more robust sort of genre and not just mystery pastiche, but just pastiche in general. So it almost feels not, not that it feels like a throwback, but it does, it does feel like you're doing something that is in some ways authentic to the time when Christie was writing, even though these books to be clear are not, they're not period. They're not, well, they're not, I guess, straightforwardly period is, is, is what I would say. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Yeah. They're set in the modern day to the extent that Midsummer Murders is set in the modern day. The technology appears when it needs to, but uh, we're not above uh, I'm not above saying oh, there were no CCTV cameras at that point kind right. of thing. Um, I, I do find that I don't read crime fiction the same way as a lot of people. And so sometimes I like to poke fun at the stereotypes around crime fiction is an element of that. Also, when I started writing Jessica Brick, I was at a bit of a loose end and I wanted something to cheer myself up. And actually, I started writing the first story the character had been with me for a while, but I started writing the first story in the waiting room for a dentist. And it was a very, not, not the most pleasant experience. And I was actually talking to a friend there and I mentioned Jessica Brick and this character I'd invented. And I had originally written her in a short story called Murder at the Oriental Express, which was set in a uh, Chinese takeaway. And I was describing that, and that was something I wrote years and years and years ago, which will never see the light of day. But I was describing that, and my friend was just in absolute stitches of laughter and said, you have to write this. And then all the old ladies in the dentist room were scowling at us because apparently a dentist's waiting room is like a library and you're not allowed to speak or have any emotion. <laughs> That's kind of true, actually, now that I think about it, yeah. <laughs> you just have to read three-year-old magazines in yeah. <laughs> stony, stony silence and scowl at any child who has the audacity to be under the age of 10 in the room. But... <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, so it was just fun at a kind of, you know, not a, not a horribly depressing time, but just a, a time that isn't a huge deal of fun. And I thought, oh, I need to keep writing this. So I went home and typed away. And then the stories started coming. Well, and I'm curious what you said about that, that. This is reflective of the way that you read mystery and appreciate mystery, because I think there are a lot of people like, for example, I the reason why I remember so well the fact that you, you know, your claim about the body in the library being a parodical or you know satirical work is that it's. So I, many would consider it an outlandish one, I think, and they'd say, "What are you talking about?" Christie doesn't really do that, and I, you know, Partners in Crime is the easy one to point to because it's very obvious what she's doing there. Because I think that a lot of people read mystery and encounter their mysteries in a much more straightforward way, and not necessarily in as ironic a way. I mean, do do you think that's fair, or like, do you think that the way 
that you appreciate the genre is different from the mainstream um, sort of a way? Or, or are you just sort of like focusing on it, focusing on one piece of it that just doesn't always get the focus, uh, the same focus from other people, I suppose? I think part of the beauty of uh, the crime genre at its best and Agatha Christie en general is that it can be a lot of things and you can read uh, something like The Body in the Library, which to me is very clearly a parody. And I'm having to physically restrain myself from going off on a huge rant about why it's a parody. Um, Why are you restraining yourself, Jamie? (laughs) This is probably the place to do it, isn't it? (laughs) Um, But uh, just imagine lots of dashes in this sentence because I'm wandering from the point. (laughs) Sorry. But something like that is equally as valid a reading as reading it as a completely straight novel. In the same way, you can read Agatha Christie and focus on plot and see her as a master plotter. Or you can read it and focus on psychology and see her as a master of human psychology. And yeah, I know that many of the uh, friends you have on your podcast have different readings of Christie. And I think, I hope we're all valid. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm reminded actually of um, the movie Gods and Monsters, which is about the creator of Frankenstein, the Frankenstein movies. It's not, it's it's not about uh, Mary Shelley, but he, I remember there's just this fabulous line about the, you know, when you're making a movie that can be appreciated ironically well the hard thing is though not to ruin it for the people who are taking it in a straightforward way and there's nothing wrong with that there's and and not to be dismissive to those reads because those reads are just as valid as the read that has one layer on top of it and i i think there's probably no one who's better at creating a series of books that can be appreciated in different ways than agatha christie because it's true i you know i think there's gradations too. It's not even like, oh, well, there's the the straightforward way and the ironic way. What does that even mean? Um, I just think there are different ways to focus on different aspects of what she's doing. And often, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, at different times of my life, uh, depending on my mood, maybe even in the day, you might read something one way and then get something different out of it that evening, you know? So yeah, I just think it's it's, it's a little bit of an unsung aspect, I think, of, of what Christy does. And it, just even in terms of her humor, Overall, I think people are still I'm constantly harping on and on about how funny Christie is, because I can tell whenever I say it, I can see it in people's eyes where they're like, no, she's not. And, you know, I'm like, how many how you know, how many textual references do I have to make? And just just read the books. They're funny. They're legitimately funny. And I, and I love that you're doing that in homage here uh, to Christie, because I think it is really worth celebrating. So I'm re- I'm really curious as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about Christie. Well, we both do, but I, I know that you very much do. Do you feel like you're doing something totally different when you write these Jessica Brick stories as opposed to your critical and theoretical work on her? Like, are they two different hats? How do those two aspects of your Christie adult brain <laughs> go together? Do they get along? Do they not? Um, Well, both are in some way my version of standing in the middle of the street with a sandwich board waving a copy of the collected works of Agatha Christie and saying, this is how I read her and things. Um, But yeah, they're, they're, they're doing different things, although I do believe that creative writing and critical writing are not too dissimilar when they're good. And I try to be good. Um, But yeah, so... Obviously, I'm much more 
focused on Agatha Christie's words and what she was doing and how we read her when uh, I'm writing critically. And then in the creative, it's there's a lot more of perhaps myself. That might be a, a weird way of putting it, but also looking at Agatha Christie in a broader context, kind of as she's understood, um, because the Agatha Christie phenomena, the Miss Marple of the books is very different to the Miss Marple of the cultural imagination, for Mm -hmm. example. And Jessica Brick is kind of modelled on a lot of our stereotypes about cosy mystery fiction in inverted commas. I'm doing the air quotes, which Kemper can appreciate, but no one else can. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so uh, in many ways, this kind of responds to a, a broader canvas if that's not too kind of highfalutin a way to talk about it because ultimately it's just supposed to be fun and actually one Agatha Christie influence in these stories is she wrote the Harley Quinn stories as and when she felt like it and deliberately um, declined to ever have a proper commission to write Harley Quinn stories and that's kind of what I, I do with Jessica is I write and actually individually uh, send out the stories when I want to. <laughs> um, so I'm not trying to become a best-selling novelist from the Jessica Brick empire because <laughs> it's mainly very personal and a bit of fun. And I'm certainly trying to be a writer in other ways with other fiction in progress. Watch this space. Oh, Okay not parody fun stuff gotcha. well, hopefully still fun but <laughs> uh, no that makes a lot of sense and i think what i also love about these stories is that it's a way to celebrate christy but not to be the person who then constantly has to point out well you think agatha christie is this but you're actually wrong because you're basing that on an episode of midsummer murders it's not even agatha christie and it feels very inclusive where you're just sort of like it's very obvious when you read these stories that you're someone who has read, even if I didn't know all of the scholarly work that you've done, it's very obvious that you've read Christie closely because as I, that's why I wanted to just pull out a couple of those references. They're very specific and they're brilliant so that, and, and anyone else who is also as, as familiar with Christie will appreciate that. But then you are also bringing in just all of these, dare I say, tropes and also, you know, to a certain extent, fuzziness as to the mystery genre. Um, and especially the TV mystery genre, it feels like, but it's all kind of then falling under the same umbrella of this story. So it feels celebratory and not like a, well, I'm here in my corner as the expert and you're wrong and I'm right. It's just sort of like, we're all, we all love the same thing really, you know? Yeah. I I feel like I I should have said that. So thank you for saying it because ultimately it's a celebration of the mystery genre and the community of crime fiction readers and viewers is the nicest community I've ever been a part of and I love it um, as an ardent crime fiction reader and viewer. I take the mickey out of myself a lot in these stories in ways that I'm not sure everyone will even notice how much (laughs) I do but um, what's really really funny and I must tell you this is there's one of the stories is called Dead Fans Folly (laughs) and it's chock-a-block with Christie references but the fan in there is an Agatha the the fan of the title who is the victim is an Agatha Christie uh, collector called Honoria Lestrange and she is based in large part on me and on certain parts of my personality that if not contained would become a thing um she's very obsessive about Agatha Christie but I have several friends who read it and wrote to me and said 
this character is me, isn't it? Um, talking about themselves. <laughs> so I think it's lovely that we all have this passion. And as Rosalind Hicks said to David Suchet when he played Poirot, people should be laughing with Poirot, not at him. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do here. Because I, I know that sometimes when I talk about Agatha Christie and Miss Marple, I feel like I'm talking as a member of a cult sometimes because I'm so interested and I think everyone should be as interested in Agatha Christie as I am. Uh, right. And so, yeah, it's partly about just enjoying celebrating and having fun with these stories and this legacy. That's really funny. Cause I also did not think that that was you actually. I think I probably just thought it was a general figure. I mean, I, I recognized a lot of myself <laughs> in it too. And that is, I mean, that's the lovely thing about doing this festival. And, you know, I mean, I, I just did back to back the Agatha Christie conference, which, you know, Jamie was organizing with a couple of other people. And then we're both here attending the festival. And, and just last night, Jamie was one of my my co-panelists on the live episode that we did. And it does feel like you're coming home in a way to, or just you're, you're coming into the fold. And I mean that in as cult like a way as maybe that sounds because you're just like, ah, oh, yes, these are, these are the people who think about Agatha Christie as much as I do. And not even necessarily in the same way, but we care as much about her. And it's actually a little emotional just because it, it takes up so much of your own psyche. And then, uh, you know, you're coming here and connecting with people in a way that you're not used to doing on this topic, because I think most of us do have the experience that if we're lucky, we have a lot of other people in our lives, friends and family and loved ones, but we probably don't connect with them about Agatha Christie in that meaningful way that we do with each other here. And it's odd. It's odd, but beautiful. And, uh, yeah. And, and I feel like you are, you, you are accessing some of that oddity and beauty in your book. Well, here's my, my million dollar question, because this is a question that I'm starting to get as well as, as many listeners know, since I won't stop going on about how they should pre-order my book if they're in the U.S. or Australia. You know, I have written a mystery myself and, and I'm starting to get the question from some people as to whether or not thinking about Agatha Christie in a sort of analytical way as much as I do and sort of analyzing her craft and her puzzles, et cetera, et cetera, whether or not that helps my own creative writing or how I apply that to my creative writing. And for me, it's not, there's not a totally simple answer. And I'm just curious how you would answer that question. Oh, that is interesting. Um, I'm going to buy myself time by saying, please pre-order a campus book, <laughs> uh, The Busybody. Brilliant. Oh, yes. I, God, I have to put that. I'm terrible at this. I have to put, plug the title, of course. <laughs> um, I mean, yes, she's hugely influenced me just in general in the way I live, in the way I breathe. I told you I'm in a cult. Uh, no, but you cannot really write without reading other writers and you cannot help but to be influenced in some way in how you write. And that's not to say picking up a formula and imitating it or trying to copy another writer or, or even trying to parody another writer or trying to write what they're not doing. Uh, all of those things are ways that you can get into writing and can be writing exercises. But ultimately, if you want to write it's because you have something to say and you have a way to say it. And writing is an intensely personal thing for both the writer and the reader. 
uh, I'd say creative writing and critical writing are uh, equally personal things. So I, while absolutely the stuff I write in probably all walks of life would not either exist or be anything like the same if it wasn't for Agatha Christie, I also think and hope that no one else is writing exactly the same sort of thing because it's it's very much a me thing and a thing that I share with my with people who read yeah I I agree with that I think the for me what makes it a complicated question is that it feels like what what's behind the question is well do you just apply almost in a one-to-one way the tricks or you know the tricks of the trade that you've learned from Agatha Christie and that I go on and on about uh, on on my podcast and you don't apply anything in a one-to-one way when you're writing or at least when I'm when I'm writing and I think and I'm sure that does go for critical writing as well actually because as you said it, it is personal because there's a person who's for now anyway uh, Jamie actually did a great talk on AI and uh, Agatha Christie at, at the Agatha Christie conference which was fantastically funny and informative but yeah i think it goes into the mix but everything else goes into the mix too i mean everything else that i've read and just and and who i am so it's just i don't think it's it's as easy or simple or straightforward of of an application of what agatha christie is doing to my writing nor would i want it to be because then at that point you're just then you are a robot who's just trying to recreate agatha christie and what's the point of that especially in the written medium right i mean we all, there's the age old question about adaptation and what's the point of, of adapting agatha christie works to a different medium if you're not going to do something different you have to do something different because it's a different medium but if you're a writer who's merely i think trying to re- create or replicate Agatha Christie in the written medium, that becomes pointless, I think. And I don't think anyone who's writing in homage to her would think of themselves that way, or, or that's that's not really their goal, you know? Well, there are a lot of writers who do try. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> um, I think pretty much most of them, I, I think we can say, are not very good. Uh, and part of that is actually we all read Agatha Christie differently um, and we all have different ideas of what she's trying to do. So <laughs> thank you for mentioning the AI talk. Part of what I did there was uh, looked at how AI models try to replicate what Agatha Christie does and found out that they don't. They actually base it on a lot of the cliches and stereotypes that we have going on in when we talk about these books. So you're never going to get a perfect replica, even if it was possible, because obviously you need unique human insight. But in a, a sense, any attempt to mimic another writer is itself personal anyway. But yeah, there are a lot of people who try to just find the formula and apply it. And those people are soulless parasites but also bad writers <laughs> well I, think, um, I know Hemingway has a, that famous quote about if you're trying to imitate a writer's voice who you admire like it's just going to be bad I think he says like this is bad very Hemingway right this is bad period and then he leaves and goes and drinks but yeah, I mean, I think I think that's true. And, and yet, uh, Jamie, at least in part of his talk, he had asked ChatGPT to create an Agatha Christie novel, and he shared the results with us, and it was just the funniest thing. I, it, 
it was, I, I believe, I remember one of the other attendees at the conference uh, was talking about how heartening it actually was because it made you feel like, oh, okay, we're, we're safe for now. At least this, the level of sophistication is nowhere near anything that needs to make us worried. But it's just a, it's, it's a tricky thing. And I'm sure a lot of the people who either you or I might think are just trying to imitate, shamelessly imitate Christie, I would wager that they don't think that they're doing that because to a certain extent, of course, everyone, it is going to be filtered through that author. So they're putting their own spin on it. This is also subjective. And um, that's where also I think it just becomes slippery. And yeah, well, I'm glad that it's as complicated <laughs> of a process because I can I can just tell from the just the few questions that I've gotten that there's just sort of this expectation of, well, if you study Agatha Christie and you write mysteries that you yourself or the people marketing your material say is Agatha Christie like, well, then that's what you did, right? You lifted that and you and you put it in there. And I also I kind of wish that I even could do that well, but I couldn't even do that well if I if I tried to. So it's a different sort of a process. Well, yes, if that was the case, you and I would both be raking it in at the top of the game because Agatha Christie is top-notch, top quality and has yeah. not yet been bettered. We'd be buying Burr Island right now. Just, exactly, just the two of us yes. living, living in style like kings. <laughs> that would be a nice place to live. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely would. Well, so do you have more Jessica Brick stories to come, Jamie? Yes. So... I haven't actually published any Jessica for a couple of years now. Uh, Part of that was deliberate because I wanted it to be fun. And we had a few unpleasant years internationally, I'd say. Did we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I I didn't really feel it was the right time, although I did write something. I, I must tell you, I wrote a kind of parody of the Tuesday Night Club and it was uh, called Shots in the Dark and uh, it was Jessica Brick and all her village friends meeting over Zoom to solve mysteries. (laughs) And I enjoyed writing it, but I thought the stuff behind this is a little bit grim and a little bit of the moment and I don't think... I think it's maybe a time capsule. Someone can find it when I'm dead and they're going through my estate. But at the moment, I'm working on a Jessica Brick novel. Ooh. And this is adapted from a play I wrote that was uh, performed at the Golden Age of Crime conference online um, called Clue Don't. That's great. I see what I did there. I very much see what you did there. I actually, can you, I I'm apologize because there's nothing more excruciating than having to explain one's own joke, but just for American uh, audience, because Cluedo is not something that makes sense to many Americans. So Clue, the board game, it is known as Cluedo in the UK, uh, like Ludo, but Cluedo. And I've added yet another terrible pun by calling it Clue Don't. And so some of the characters are recognized types uh, from the clue game but also jessica and her arch nemesis a french detective called Achille piero are meeting in a country house where they've been called by a gossip columnist who's writing their biographies who ends up dead in a locked room that's fantastic. And this is that this is just what I love, Jamie, because like Akil Piero, it's like it would have been enough just to do the Akil, but then he also is doing the Piero, which brings in the whole Harlequinade and the it's like the ravings of a Christie lunatic. Like you feel <laughs> like you feel like you're just it's like, you know, the Marquis de Sade writing on the wall sort of thing. Like it's just 
It's so exquisite. I feel at home. I love that you're just like tapping into that lunacy. <laughs> uh, you have just given me the perfect quote for the back cover. So <laughs> thank you. Well, I am very much looking forward to reading uh, a Jessica Brick novel. That is fantastic. And obviously, I really appreciate what you're doing with this series. And um, I think there are a lot of listeners out there who would also appreciate it. So I uh, encourage everyone to check out Jessica Brick, and I'm very excited to hear that you're also working on other creative endeavors as well. And I know you're always working on other, you always have other projects in the uh, critical space when it comes to Agatha Christie. So um, obviously there's lots more to come from Jamie Berntall Hooker. And I really appreciate you sitting down at this very busy time. We uh, we all have such busy schedules here at the Agatha Christie Festival, uh, popping around from one thing to another. So thank you for sitting down with me and talking about your work. Thank you for having me and for letting me just spew my mania. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you again to Dr. Jamie Berntall Hooker. It was such a delight to see him at the festival, and I'm so appreciative to him for giving me that time for this little bonus recorded conversation. He was quite busy at the festival this year, so thank you, Jamie, for making the time. For my next episode, I will be doing something a little traditional. I'm going to be covering a short story that has a televised adaptation. Oh, happy day. Given the time of year, I figured a Halloween spooktacular episode was in order. So we will be covering In a Glass Darkly, a delicious little bonbon of an Agatha Christie short story. Very much a standalone, very much an outlier story, but one that I think shows flashes of the brilliance to come. I can't wait to discuss it all with you. And there is an hour-long adaptation that aired as part of the Agatha Christie Hour. That early 80s program that featured a grab bag of Agatha Christie short stories. I believe that it is available for free on YouTube. Just search for In a Glass Darkly Agatha Christie and it should pop right up. Until then, you could always head on over to the podcast's Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash allaboutagatha or just click the link in the notes to this episode. I did a mini review of Kenneth Branagh's A Haunting in Venice for my October episode. For November's episode, I will be covering the 1937 film adaptation of Agatha Christie's Philomel Cottage, beloved short story of Christie's. That film is titled Love from a Stranger. It is based on the theatrical adaptation of Christie's short story written by Frank Vosper, and it stars Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes himself, with apologies to Jeremy Brett. Eh, they're both Sherlock Holmes, as is Benedict Cumberbatch. There's always room for more interpretations, right? That should be a fun episode. Really looking forward to that. And you can, of course, email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. I love hearing from you, so please keep those emails coming. The podcast is on Twitter at allaboutthedame and on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And if you haven't yet done so, please give the podcast a rating and or a review wherever you are listening to this. I've been getting a nice steady flow of them in, actually, so I would love to keep that stream moving. It really means a lot to me, really helps out the podcast. So thank you in advance for that, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.